Welcome to part two of The Strange Yet True Occurrence on the Night Lizzie Borden Died, the third episode in my podcast, Hysteria. It's where the dead bring history to life. And I'm Diane Ladley, named by my fellow storytellers as America's Ghost Storyteller. In part one, we revisited the facts of the unsolved Borden axe murder case, where the victim's daughter, Lizzie Borden, was arrested, tried, and declared innocent in a court of law but condemned forever in the eyes of society and history. In this episode, I'll reveal one very strange yet well-documented event that occurred 35 years after the murders that strongly suggests a ghost brought a terrifying justice to the true killer. Just a warning, this episode contains graphic descriptions of violence and may not be suitable for younger or more sensitive listeners. But first, we'll explore a compelling theory developed by several Borden scholars, a brilliant solution to the most infamous unsolved crime of the 19th century. A theory that drops all the puzzle pieces neatly into place one by one, building a picture of a diabolically conceived plot for murder. It has to do with Emma, Lizzie's sister. Being the eldest by nine years, Emma was the controlling heir to their father's huge fortune, but only because Abby died first, which ensured her heirs couldn't legally inherit. And to further cement Emma's inheritance, Andrew's will was never found. Strangely enough, because it was Andrew changing his will that set off this deadly chain of events. So, Emma had even more motive than Lizzie for killing their father and stepmother. But Emma was out of town that day, Plus, she was such a colorless, drab, perfectly respectable 41-year-old Victorian spinster. In contrast to the bright, outgoing, fiery Lizzie, police just sort of forgot about her. Newspapers reported Emma was, quote, entirely calm at the funerals, and during the court proceedings described her as having no personality and, quote, was devoid of emotion, a small, plain woman, who appeared to desire nothing so much as to be overlooked. Even today, most people have no idea Lizzie Borden even had a sister. Emma's been forgotten, just as she wished. Yet Emma herself admitted in the witness box that she carried a rage against her stepmother for many years and was so filled with, quote, an underlying hatred, suspicion, and bitterness that she could hardly find it in herself to ever even speak to Abby. Oh, the police checked into Emma's alibi of visiting friends out of town and found it to be true. So they didn't pursue it and completely took Emma off their list of suspects. But she was less than 15 miles away, about an hour's carriage ride. No one found it strange to learn that Emma had never stayed even a single night away from her family before this in her entire life. Even odder, these friends were no more than casual acquaintances with whom Emma had little in common friends who had casually mentioned to the police that their guest took out their little carriage with its overhanging hood for several hours each morning of her two-week visit. In fact, Emma had missed the noon train to Fall River on the day of the murders because she had been out on her usual ride when the telegram arrived. This fact is critical because during the court proceedings, a witness testified to having seen an unfamiliar carriage with an overhanging hood 
parked in the street near the Borden house the morning of the crime. But that witness said the driver was a strange young man with a beard, dark suit, and wide-brimmed hat. The police exhaustively hunted for such a man, whom other neighbors had also seen in the area, but couldn't find a trace of such a person. This baffling piece of evidence had long puzzled police. It was a riddle so unsolvable it might have even stumped Sherlock Holmes. And in fact, maybe it did. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's short story, A Scandal in Bohemia, featuring the great detective, was published in the Strand magazine just the summer before the Bordens were murdered. In the story was a woman who successfully fooled even Sherlock Holmes by dressing as a man. We know Emma drove out that morning in her borrowed horse and carriage hours before her hostesses woke up. But what if, in the stretch of deep forest on the road to Fall River, she changed into a disguise? A man's dark suit coat, pants, a wide-brimmed hat, and a false beard and mustache. Dressing as a man was an utterly unthinkable act for a Victorian woman, the strictest of society's cultural taboos. It would never occur to anyone to do it. Oh, Emma would have been so proud of her daring and cleverness, inspired by the Sherlock Holmes story. No one would ever suspect her of the murder that she had dreamed of for so long. But Emma's plot would require an accomplice to let her inside the locked house, to be a lookout, and to convincingly tell their concocted story of a crazed male intruder to the police. It was the perfect acting role for her theater-loving sister, Lizzie, who wanted to rid the world of their despised stepmother as much as Emma did. But not their father. Lizzie loved their father. So what went wrong? Now, with this theory in mind, let's weave this thread of reasoning into the facts of the case and imagine how it might have spun out on that hot August day. Arriving in her borrowed carriage at the house, dressed in her man's costume around 9.30 a.m., Emma lingered about the neighborhood until her co-conspirator, Lizzie, gave her the all-clear and let her in at the side door. Lizzie whispered that Bridget was in the barn getting water to wash the windows, and Abby was upstairs. Emma crept up the back stairs, Lizzie right behind her. Emma peeked into the guest bedroom, saw her victim on her knees on the other side of the bed, tucking in the sheets. Now was the time. Emma silently slipped in behind Abby, then let loose years of rage and a savage eruption of axe blows to her head and neck. Lizzie was in Emma's bedroom on the other side of the wall, listening to the meaty, wet sounds of the axe going on and on and on. Finally, the grisly sounds stopped, and Emma appeared in the doorway, blood bathing her exultant face and gleaming on the dark suit. Lizzie had already spread her own raincoat and newspapers on the floor for Emma to stand on, just as they had planned. Police reported the raincoat was missing and that no bloody footsteps stained the carpet. Triumphant that their hated stepmother was dead, Lizzie gave a nervous laugh, just as Bridget, the maid, went to the front door to let Andrew Borden in. Andrew's sickness and subsequent return from the office was unexpected and potentially disastrous to their meticulously detailed plot. 
Standing in Emma's room, the sisters frantically whispered last-second changes to their plans. Suppressing her growing hysteria, Lizzie went downstairs to tell their father and Bridget that Abby had received a note and gone out to visit a sick friend. A weak alibi, with no note to back it up, but it was the best they could come up with at the last second. Standing on the stairs while addressing her father and Bridget, Lizzie conveniently blocked the view of the body and served as a subtle suggestion to Andrew to not use those stairs to go up to bed. It worked. Andrew used the back stairs to his bedroom, then used the same back stairs to go down to the parlor and lie down. In the meantime, Bridget put away her cleaning supplies, then climbed the back stairs to her room to lie down. Lizzie went into the dining room to finish her ironing, then briefly popped her head into the parlor to tell her father she'd be out in the barn and left out the kitchen door. Emma, listening in from upstairs, now knew the coast was clear to make her escape. It was almost 11 o'clock, and enough time had elapsed that the blood on her man's clothes had dried almost unnoticed against the dark wall. She bundled the hatchet and blood-stained newspapers in Lizzie's raincoat and slipped downstairs, intending to leave by the kitchen door. But she paused at the parlor entrance when she saw the back of her father's head propped up on the sofa as he dozed. Perhaps Andrew even woke up at the sound of a man's shoes on the stairs and drowsily asked, Who was there? Emma was euphoric with bloodlust at the easy success of her first kill. In that moment, fury and vindictiveness against her father built up in her, as well as greed for his fortune and the freedom it would give to both she and Lizzie. This golden opportunity was intoxicating. She knew that Lizzie, who dearly loved their father despite their disagreements, would be shocked and horrified. Their plan was to only get rid of Abby. But in her newly awakened madness, Emma was confident that Lizzie would eventually see reason and come to forgive her. Besides, Lizzie's feigned grief over their stepmother's death might not be convincing to the police. Emma figured that Lizzie might need a little motivation to make her acting more realistic. So Emma slid the hatchet from the raincoat, stepped up to the sofa, and ecstatically buried the axe blade in the middle of her father's face. A minute later, she's in the carriage driving down 2nd Avenue. The deep shadow of the overhanging cover and the wide-brimmed hat and dark material of her man's disguise neatly conceal the gory evidence from the eyes of everyone she passes. Emma drove to the secret place in the forest and buried the clothing and murder weapon. She then washed herself thoroughly, changed back into her dress, and tidied her hair. She arrived back at her friend's home an hour later and was greeted by the telegram she knew was coming. Emma was right about one thing. Lizzie's shock at discovering her father's body was genuine. Her raw grief, witnessed by multiple people, probably saved her from the electric chair. But Emma was wrong about something else. Lizzie never forgave her. It was Emma who, as the eldest, had complete legal possession of Andrew Borden's entire estate. It was Emma who bought the mansion Maplecroft, where the sisters lived together for several years. 
It was the ultra-conservative Emma who, appalled by Lizzie's wild parties, threatened to move out and was shocked to the core when Lizzie agreed. It was Emma who finally gave Lizzie her share of the inherited wealth to buy out her full ownership of the mansion. But after the deed to Maplecroft was signed, it was apparently Lizzie who demanded that the sisters never again speak, see, write, or otherwise have any contact with each other for the rest of their lives. During her testimony, Emma told the courtroom of the solemn deathbed promise she had made to their dying mother when Emma was 11 years old and Lizzie was only two to always take care of her baby sister. Emma had literally raised Lizzie since she was a child. Her feelings were more like that of a mother than a sister. What terrible, unforgivable act would have caused Lizzie to sever all contact to the person who was the closest thing to a mother she had ever known? Perhaps a murder plot that had gone too far? If this theory is indeed what happened, and again, I emphasize that this is all just a theory, though the only one where all of the puzzling little pieces fit perfectly, then Lizzie couldn't accuse her sister without implicating herself, too. But she could punish her in other ways. By all accounts, Lizzie was fine, never seeing nor hearing from her sister again, though she had to endure the full blame of the crime of the century, and still does 125 years later. It was only Emma, the innocent one in society's eyes, who suffered from their separation, as noted in several accounts years afterward. It was Emma who was utterly grief-stricken by Lizzie's imposed punishment for the crime that neither of them dared ever confess. It was Emma who, in her later years, became very strange in her behavior. When the sisters broke apart, Emma bought a house several towns away and lived on the top floor. Two women, sisters, lived below and took care of her. Neighbors reported that all during her time there, Emma never left that house, except for a few minutes every day at dusk to stand out in the yard. She always wore black and became obsessive and paranoid in all things. For example, she had a hidden staircase built from her bedroom down to a secret door in the kitchen pantry. At the bottom of these stairs were two interesting things. One was an electric panel that, when the switch was pulled, all the lights in the house would turn on instantly. The second interesting thing at the bottom of that secret stair was a hatchet axe. The caretaker sisters found that disturbing. An elegant lady's gun would have been the logical choice for self-protection since Emma was now elderly and an intruder could easily wrestle an axe away from her. But no, Emma's weapon of choice was the same kind used to kill her father and stepmother. As we now know, murderers always have one favorite kind of weapon. Now this is not evidence of Emma's guilt, but it is highly suspicious. So much so that the sisters oh so delicately questioned Emma about the hidden stair, the axe, and her unusual precautions. Emma's only explanation was, one day they will come for me in the night, and I will be ready for them. She refused to say who they were.
It was in the dark hour before dawn on June 2nd, 1927. Emma was awakened by a suspicious noise downstairs. She got out of bed and crept down her secret staircase, heading for the light panel and the hatchet axe. But in the dark, Emma fell down those stairs, tumbling over and over and over to land at the bottom. The fall broke her hip, but something else broke her mind. She fell into a delirious coma filled with harrowing nightmares and intense hallucinations where she would babble and rave incoherently, suddenly erupting into blood-curdling screams that lasted for hours. The doctors were baffled. Her head showed no signs of concussion, and apart from the broken hip and bruises, she seemed otherwise healthy. But after eight agonizing days of endless hell, Emma Borden's torment finally ended with her death. No one knows what happened on those stairs. Maybe Emma simply slipped in the darkness. Or maybe she saw something or someone whom she had long feared coming for her. For on that exact same night, in the same hours before dawn that Emma had crept down those stairs to her death, her sister, Lizzie Borden, died of complications from routine gallbladder surgery in a Fall River hospital. The single most commonly reported paranormal phenomenon is that of a visitation from a loved one either at or soon after the time of their death. It's so common that science and psychology have terms for it, grief hallucination or apparitional experience. It's considered a normal reaction to the loss of a loved one. One study found that 80% of elderly people experience a grief hallucination of their deceased spouse up to a month after they had passed away and 30% swore the apparition even spoke to them. So while science explains this away as your brain unconsciously playing tricks to console yourself, there are countless documented cases throughout history of so-called grief hallucinations in which the visited had no idea the loved one was dead or even sick. You've probably heard stories of mothers waking up to see their son smiling down at her at the same time he lay dead on a battlefield across the ocean, or the dying elderly man claiming to see and chat with a relative who lives far away, only to discover later that the relative had unexpectedly died at the same time the man greeted them. Again, this astonishing experience is common enough that science has a word for it. Veridical, a Latin adjective meaning truth and to see. It's defined as a dream or hallucination that is confirmed by subsequent events previously unknown. Paranormal investigators call this veridical experience what it really is, a ghost. Specifically, the spirit of a recently deceased person visiting someone with whom they had a deep emotional relationship to assure their loved one that they're happy and all right and to say a final goodbye. But what if that deep emotional relationship is not one of love, but hate? Instead of a beautiful, poignant message of farewell and everlasting love, it would be a terrifying accusation from beyond the grave that their sins are unforgiven, 
and hell is a very real place waiting for them. A thought sure to shock the guilty party into madness. Is that what happened to Emma Borden as she crept down that secret staircase in the early pre-dawn hours of that night? Did a veridical grief hallucination of Lizzie appear to Emma mere hours after her unexpected death? Did her angry ghost confront her treacherous older sister face to face for one last time, accusing her of taking their murderous plan too far? And were the vengeful wraiths of Andrew and Abby at her side, condemning blood-drenched specters, shocking Emma into slipping on the stairs, wrecking a terrible justice on the true killer during eight endless days of tormented delirium before she died, screaming to the last? Did they come to drag her soul into hell? Did they finally come for Emma in the night? Thank you for listening to Hysteria. This episode was written and produced by me, Diane Ladley, America's ghost storyteller. You can find sources, references, links, and music credits for all the episodes on the facebook.com slash hysteria page. And say hi while you're there. a small favor to ask of you. Creating this free podcast series isn't just a labor of love. As a physically disabled woman with no husband, kids, or family to support me, I really need corporate sponsorship money to help pay for more free history podcast episodes and literally put food on my table. But first, I have to attract their attention, and that's where you come in. Will you please take this moment to post a good four- or five-star review on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast provider you use? The higher Hysteria gets in the rankings, the more chance it'll attract a sponsor. While you're there, click on the subscription button to automatically get downloads of the newest free episodes as I post them every three weeks. The more subscriptions I get, the higher the ranking, more sponsors, etc. If you really like these episodes, maybe you could afford to donate like $2 or more every month on Patreon.com as my valued patron of the arts. Though history will always be free, my patrons will get some fascinating extras and cool swag that non-donors will never see. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And finally... The most helpful thing of all that you can do? Turn your friends on to my Hysteri podcast. Spread the word, send out the link. Any or all of these actions helps to not only support a really cool, scary podcast, 
but also helps a disabled person who refuses to give in to fear. However way you choose to help, right now, you have my sincere thanks. On a sad note, I'm dedicating this episode to the memory of my darling little girl cat, Banshee, who passed peacefully away in my arms after 15 wonderful years during the making of this episode. Next on Hysteria, I'll take you on a nerve-shattering midnight stroll inside a lost cemetery for the insane. For a hundred years, in mental asylums across the country, the depressed, deformed, and disabled closely shared living space with the most diabolic, deranged, and demonic psychopaths to ever walk among us. And all were subjected to inhumane cures of a monstrous cruelty under the mask of compassion. On my haunted hometown's ghost tours, I'm allowed the privilege of taking guests into the old Elgin, Illinois State Mental Hospital Pauper's Cemetery in the dead of night to relate the terrible history of asylums nationwide. In my years of visiting that isolated, abandoned cemetery, I've recorded some unsettling encounters that I can not explain. In this special episode of Hysteria, you'll hear some of those ghostly recorded encounters firsthand, as if you were right there as the action took place. Midnight in the Insane Asylum Cemetery is an episode you won't want to miss, so be sure to subscribe to the Hysteria podcast to get it automatically downloaded into your device the minute it's launched. Thank you again for listening to Hysteria. It's where the dead bring history to life.